Adults treatment are completely at your own discretion. Dr. Doreen Grand-Pichet is the Dr. Doreen is an expert in autism. Doreen Grand-Pichet. Dr. Grand-Pichet. Dr. Doreen Grand-Pichet. Dr. Doreen Grand-Pichet is a visionary in the field of autism. Now you can ask her questions on Ask Dr. Doreen. Good morning and welcome to Ask Dr. Doreen and look who's here. Good morning, Shannon. It's Dr. Grampiche. She's back and we're so thrilled to have her back. We missed her so much. You know, we always say that we need to be able to allow her to be other places when she has to be other places, but there's nothing better than when she comes back uh, (laughs) because she's a true expert in the field of autism and she's a wonderful human being and she cares about you and your kiddos and your family members. And she has more knowledge about this than any eight people I know. And I mean that sincerely. Uh, I, you know, I, I sent you a text uh, a couple of like a week and a half ago because I was coming back from a conference and I always love to be around other people and hear what other people have to say, but it always makes me appreciate how brilliant you are, man. It just brings it all home to me. And I go, whoo, I got so lucky because I, I, you know, I'm with the mothership. Uh, oh, <laughs> you're the mothership. You're so kind. Thank you. Yo. You, you- you were at the Calava conference, right? I was, and it was amazing, and there were amazing people there. But I also always, you know, I I just get this thing when I'm talking to other people, and I realize how amazing your knowledge is, and how much I want to be a part of spreading your knowledge to more people because you have a message that is so clear and is so on point about the humanity of people on the spectrum and how their needs need to be met. And, and I just, I found myself saying to people all the time, well, you know, my mentor, Dr. Doreen Grampiche says it has to be fair. And, and, and just seeing how much that needs to be said to people, um, yeah. And that it's and that it's like a perfect guideline. So anyway, I just I, right. I had so much love for you while I was there. I was like, wow, you know how when you think somebody is incredible, and then you go someplace and then you realize, oh, they're that they're that incredible. You're, you're that you. incredible. You're so kind. Thank you. Oh no, so grateful. Um. Anyway, so welcome to the Love Fest, you guys. If you don't know Dr. Grampiche, <laughs> oh, I'm so glad that you're here. And and she is, as I said, a true expert in the field of autism, having been working in this field for over, get this, 40 years. I know she stepped out of the womb and went right to work. Must have been, right? But uh, it's true. She's been working in this field for over 40 years. I don't think there's anyone who believes stronger in the rights of individuals who are on the autism spectrum and their right to be treated as individuals and really gets that every family has its own need and and is its own pod. Um, We just really adore her as a visionary in this field. So she donates this hour for you guys to ask questions. We've opened up the forums. Amanda has already sent us her blue hearts and Rhea has said good morning. Good morning to her as well. We're live right now on Facebook, on YouTube, on Twitter, and about a dozen other sites. Traven is going to start to show those to you on the screen if you're watching the video. If you you might be watching or listening to us in podcasts, we are the number one rated autism podcast worldwide for the second year in a row. Woohoo! And that is really because of you guys, because you like us, you share us. You let other people in your community know when you find something worthwhile here. So we're, we're going to ask you to keep doing that. 
Um, in particular, we I've said this many times, but we love, love, love when you give us a review on iTunes because I don't know why, but in the algorithm that helps us to get to more people so that more people can ask questions here. So if you want to help out, if you're asking yourself, you know, what can I do? We're not asking you to send any coinage in. Um, we know you've got other things to spend your money on, but please help us to get to more people that helps us keep the lights on. So, uh, and I'm, I'm just excited to be here. We also have to give the disclaimer that even though Dr. Grant Pichet, I believe is the preeminent expert in the field of autism in any time, not just our time, there is no expert that can give individual specific advice in this format. That wouldn't be fair to the individual. Come on. So uh, what we ask is that you write in, be as specific as possible. We uh, will ask as many of your questions as we can of Dr. Grampy Shea. Some of them we might be referring over to her TikTok channel because uh, you could be watching Ask Dr. Doreen on TikTok, which can I tell you how many people were telling me at the conference, oh my gosh, we're watching uh, Dr. Grampiche on TikTok. And I was like, there you go. So um, it's a great way. There's there's like an instant gratification kind of thing going on over on TikTok. So some of these questions we will be referring over there. We want you to check that out. Um, but keep in mind, be as specific as possible, but she will have to be general in nature and she may have more questions for you, but she has to be general in nature because she doesn't have the ability to have eyes on the individual. Alicia says, buenos dias, uh, Shannon and Dr. Doreen, my favorite people on the planet. Mm -hmm. Likewise, mwah, we are loving you. Okay. Can we wade in Dr. Grampiche or would you, do you have anything you would like to add? No, we can get started and, and thank you everyone. And it's lovely to be back and looking forward to hearing some questions. Yeah. And we have some questions that came in, in uh, over the next, over the last few days on our uh, website, which uh, we have two different websites that we're on right now. You can catch us. We really want you to be going to autismnetwork.com. That's the new website. That's where you're going to find everything and you're going to find the new stuff. That website is growing. It's not fully flushed out yet, but there's everything you need right now is there. You can click on the autism live tab and be watching us live. You can go on that tab and you can write in on the chat, which is what we're talking about. Uh, but you can also check out all the other things that you need to be finding there, including there's a whole thing for Ask Dr. Doreen, which is fabulous. So the, we're, we always start with questions that come in um, from that. And I, I'm going to uh, I'm gonna start with the toughie. I'm just going to go there. I, I love when, when we started this show, one of the things that you said to me, Dr. Grampiche, was I think it would be great, Shannon, if, if we created a space where parents could be honest, mm -hmm. where they could say all the things that they need to say, because sometimes parents feel guilty about what they're feeling. Um, and I, I, I love that we have people who, and so we're just going to come to this question with absolutely no judgment because I think everybody has been in some version of this, but it's a long one and I'm going to cut through some of it, but they say, I've never posted, but it's getting so hard for me to deal with my son. And they said, I guess I'm just here to vent and sorry that it's a jumble. But essentially, this is a mama, two special needs kids. She's got a daughter who has a chromosomal um, abnormality. And, and so that's hard. Um, but now she also has a son who is on the spectrum. She says, um, 
that he's, well, he's scheduled to be diagnosed, but she's pretty sure that he is on the spectrum. He has a few stims uh, that he does when he's excited or mad. He gets frustrated so easily, has meltdowns, avoids eye contact, likes to smash his face into us when he's mad. He has trouble with transitions. He is verbal, but does not communicate. She says, I could go on. He had an IEP when he was three years old that stated that he, uh, that it was developmental delay. He's been in a blended classroom, but he is eloping from that classroom. And when he elopes from that classroom, he goes to the cluster classroom, which they're now saying that they would like to move him there. And she's okay with that because that seems to be where he wants to be. Uh, they say that on the plus side, he has a great memory and that he's very intelligent. However, he won't engage or focus. It's the same at home. He does get weekly speech therapy and OT, but she says, I am triggered by seeing other families with typical children. And truthfully, I am jealous. I cry every day. I also uh, have a daughter uh, with a rare genetic disorder. She says it hurts so badly to not be able to communicate with your child. I want to know what he's thinking or what he did at school. He just blurts out random lines from his TV shows or favorite songs. I want to know what he wants to eat for breakfast. She says we do give him choices, but mostly he just repeats the last thing we say. She says, I try to play with him, but he just wants to play by himself. I feel like we are existing in this house next to each other and not really connecting or engaging with other. And it makes me so sad. She goes on to tell a story about one day when she was at a park and a little boy came up to her and asked her to push him on the swing. She says, he talked to me. He seemed to really love it. And we laughed and we actually had a conversation. And then he asked me why my son wouldn't talk to him or play. She says, it really broke my heart because this is the connection that I want and the moments that I want to share with my son and he doesn't seem to want to. And then I feel guilt for comparing and wishing and hoping he could be something I know he isn't. She wants to know, does it get better? Will he speak in complete sentences? How do I exist without being miserable? Will we ever be able to do things as a family like going to a pumpkin patch or going to an indoor play area or meeting Santa, etc.? She references that they went to a pumpkin patch and that it was a complete disaster. She says, I feel so much guilt for not being happy with the children I have. I often wonder if it's karma or maybe I was never supposed to have kids. She says, I feel like the depression is ruining, ruining everything, my marriage, my connection with my kids. But lately, I just wanted to walk away rather than keep trying to engage. <sighs> yeah. She says, oh, my God. Yeah. She says, it's hard to make friends as I'm triggered when I see their neurotypical children. Uh, my two special needs kids are not really interested in each other and it breaks my heart. This is not what I pictured. Uh, I guess my heart breaks every time uh, I see other normal people and I grieve the life that I know we will not have. Thanks for listening. I really hope this gets better because I don't know how the, how to do this for 10 years down the road. I think we can all relate on some level. We may not have two kids in this way, but I just want to hug this mom. And already people are saying, I could have written that 10 years ago and hugs to her. Thank you, Amanda, for saying that. Renee says, wow, I can, I can relate. Um, everybody's saying it gets better. But Dr. Grampy Shea, woo, we're like right. hitting it right on the nerve here, right? 
Yeah, my heart just goes out to this mom and, and all the moms who are relating to this. This is not easy. I mean, it's she, you know, she she wrote what a lot of people feel. And a lot of times I think we don't express the all of the anguish, right? The anxiety, the fears, the guilt, the the jealousy, the all of that, right? And it all boils down, I guess, to sort of the question, why me, right? Like, why do I have to encounter this? And I have to tell you, I, um, I'm not gonna, I'm not, I just, I'm not gonna sit here and say, oh, there, here are the beautiful sides of it. Um, there are some sides that are beautiful that other parents, that parents of typically developing kids often don't experience every milestone because life is going by so fast. And with our kids, we do, right? Like the, the first time he or she says something, the first time this, the first time that, it's things have slowed down. And so we get to actually see them and appreciate them in a different way, right? But I think, I guess the, the one message that I wanna give is to try and look at a different side of this, which isn't, which is, which goes back to kind of Shannon, the why me and the why me has to do with your strength and your ability and your, you know, <clears throat> it's a special parent. It's a special person who can take care of a child with special needs, who can care for children who need special care um and if not you who like do you like do you recognize the this the amazingness of you uh in in taking care of these kids do you do you realize that you are one of an elite group that can handle this hardship can handle this burden, I'll say, or can handle these anxieties and guilt and all of this sort of stuff, right? Uh, and and you have been and you are. And if you can, I think, you know, start looking at, um, I guess, you know, how special you are that you have been given this responsibility as opposed to, I just, I can't handle this responsibility, which I know how many parents feel that way. Um, but what I'm saying is you have handled it, you are handling it. Yeah. And every moment that goes by, you're, you're taking care of two special needs kids. Uh, you know, we talk about parents who uh, adopt special needs kids. We both mm -hmm. know parents who ado have yes. adopted special needs kids. And and I think it's uh, the same level of just awe I have towards parents who are uh, given to special needs kids and they continue to take care of them and they continue to get up every morning and dedicate their own lives to the care of these children. It's, you have every right to, to um, you know, write to us and just empty out all the pain and you should maybe do that more often. I mean, I, I really recommend that you don't try to, I guess, I, I mean, I don't think that as, as parents of special needs kids, I don't think we should be trying to fit in to, you know, parents of 
neurotypical kids because they're experiencing different things. But there's a whole universe of parents of special needs kids who would uh, welcome you, understand you, support you, give you love, give you understanding. Um, and that's where I think you should be because that is the support that you need, right, Shannon? That's where you will get a lot of the feeling yeah. of, I'm going to survive this and I'm going to thrive and I'm going to make a big difference in the world. Yeah. You know, Dr. Grand Pichet, that I um, do a, I call it a comedy show, although there's some very, very serious moments in it called the Autism Monologues. And in the end of it, yeah. there there's a monologue that I call The Bridge. And it was something that I wrote a while back when I, when I'd gotten through the, the first 17 hoops, right? And, and I said, you know, people don't understand what this is, but I think that being on this path is a lot like being shoved onto a bridge. Mm -hmm. You didn't choose it, but some you were like moving along and somebody just shoved you on the bridge and you can't get back to the land. And you find yourself on the bridge looking around going, wait a second, how did I get here? I yeah. didn't choose this. This is a poop sandwich. Yeah. I'm not even sure. I don't have a backpack for this. I don't, I don't know how to deal with this. And, and you're told to just start walking on the bridge. It's mm -hmm. really scary. Yeah. And you cannot help looking back and seeing all the people on the land and going, why isn't that my life? why, why are we here on the, I don't think there's a way to stop yourself from doing it, but I will say that you're in the hardest phase of it. Honestly, everyone will tell you that because you're in the phase where you haven't found the thing that's going to help you yet. Yeah. You're in the yeah. phase where you're about to have your child be diagnosed. You've identified that there's an issue, that there's a difference, but you're not at the help. And I think if you start walking in the direction of help, the thing that I say in the monologue is that eventually you start looking around on the bridge and see that other people are making it work. And you have, then the question starts to become, how are they that mm -hmm. I'm not managing? How are they managing? So you start following them. And I will tell you not to, you know, Nancy calls this farting rainbows. <laughs> So I don't want to fart a rainbow on you, but I will tell you that when you start moving in that direction, what you're going to find, all these people that are writing in right now and saying it does get better and we're here for you and we're sending hugs, you're going to find the most amazing, I'm getting goosebumps. You're going to yeah. find the most amazing people you will ever meet in your life. That's the true. other parents and their kiddos. Um there, no joke. These are the best people on the face of the planet. And you're going to, you're going to start to recognize these people as your friends. So true. And eventually you stop looking back at the land because you realize that's not where we are. Yep. And you start to acknowledge, okay, we're on the bridge and, and we're finding the things that have it make sense for us. And the equation is different for everybody. But there is hope. It does get better. And when you prioritize what are the things that you want to be able to do, you know, and find the right people to help. Because if, if what you want is to be able to go to a pumpkin patch, I can guarantee you there is a way for you to go to a pumpkin patch. It may mean you take three extra people with you. But you can have a glorious time. I, there, there's even a part of, of my comedy show where, where I talk about how we got kicked out of the family fun fair 
uh, pumpkin patch, the fall festival, because my kid couldn't handle it. And that I slunk away in shame feeling like, oh, well, I guess, I guess we can't go to these places. That isn't, that isn't where we ended up and it's not where you need to end up, but, but we need to get you on the road to better days that's going to start with getting this diagnosis and then getting you on the road to help and support. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's very, that's all really, really well said, Shannon. And of course, you know, those of you who have experienced it personally can <clears throat> reach out and help other parents who are going through this early stage of it. I remember, I want to just, you know, I've shared the lives of so many parents over the course of the years that, I just remember, and I think that is, I've always said this to you, it's like people ask me, why did I stay in the field of autism? I mean, it's now like 44 years that I'm in the field of autism and I always go back and I always loved the kids that I met, but it was always the moms that that was Mm -hmm. the thing that kept me in the field was because I had so many moms who were just, completely at, and it's to this day like when i diagnose a family at the very beginning it's a very devastating and scary diagnosis it's a lot better now than it was 40 years ago because there's a society that you can belong to right there's a group and people understand more and there's some some level of better acceptance and better awareness but nevertheless I remember I was very young and uh, I used to go to help this family and I used to go to their home. This is when I was still at UCLA. And um, and I remember I was probably at this point in my 20s, right? I was in my doctoral program. And I remember seeing all over the house, the, the mom had put signs, little messages to herself. Mm-hmm. There were little cards, just like index cards that she had written, you'll be okay. This will pass. You'll be okay. And and I just want to say, and at that time, I didn't understand the gravity of that. Like how important was it? And what was she going through that she needed that? How fragile of a time it was for her that she was going through that. And of course, I, I know that mom now and she's, you know, a powerhouse. And uh, and I will say her child did not recover or, you know, go to do the things that she always imagined her child would. But in the meanwhile, on the journey, she became stronger and stronger. And I, I think one of the things that I learned from that mom is that she, I started reaching out and helping others and uh, helping those that were behind her in the journey. And that made her uh, just gave her such an incredible sense of uh, belonging and also just a sense of, uh, you know, like this is this was my journey. This is where I was meant to be. This is what I was supposed to do. And um, and then her her her. I guess her feeling about herself stopped being defined by how her son was doing. And it became more about, uh, this is my role in life. And I I know that I know a lot of parents who have found their, their roles in life later. So be strong and just, you are strong and just keep going. And, And as Shannon said, know that things actually do get a lot easier. 
no matter what, the very first stage is definitely the hardest. Yeah. Uh, so get the diagnosis and, and move forward with it because a lot of parents who get the diagnosis, I do go, talk to them for a long, long time about what does this diagnosis mean to you? And sometimes parents uh, think the diagnosis is a, you know, a horrible lifelong thing and it's not. It's just, it's just a label that tells you some of the things that you'll need to work on with your child. So um, take, get the diagnosis, move forward, and, and we're here for you. And if yes. you need to come back and write, we are here and happy to talk to you and happy to help you. Absolutely. And, and you can see that in the chat, many people are writing in and saying, if you want to read it, reach out to them. I will tell you, you don't know it right now and you don't feel it right now, but you are in a lot of people's arms right now. People are thinking of you and holding on to you and we're here for you. Please feel free to, to write to any of us. Um, I do want to acknowledge and I want to say hello to uh, Humera who has written in and said, autism is neurodiversity, then why is it treated as a behavior problem? And I think this is a great question and I'm glad that you brought it up um, because I think we get a little confused here between that, that a diagnosis of an autism spectrum disorder and when we see behavior that is um, not helping the person to achieve their goals. So help us, Dr. Grampuchet, to understand. It's such a great question, Homera. It's such a deep question, I feel, because it's, you know, for someone like myself who's been in the field long, long before it was an issue of neurodiversity, long before it was accepted, let's put it that way, um, it, this, this question is easy for me to answer. But I can see when someone who has entered the world of autism now and there's two sides, right? There are people who say, this is a, you know, this is neurodiversity and let's accept it. And then there are other people who say, no, we can't accept this. And I just, it's funny, I, Shannon, this past week, I just did a video on, on for my TikTok, which is probably going to be posted this week, which was about this issue of, you know, do I just accept it and move forward or do I try to change it? And, and I think that's what the core of this is. And I want to say, you know, I, I want to give our viewers two thoughts about this. And, and one is, so first of all, you know, we have a, a manual called the Diagnostic, mine happens to be right here, <laughs> you know, the Diagnostic <laughs> and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders is this massive book. And it changes every few years, but, you know, autism is in there, obviously. And in order to qualify to be in there, in other words, in order to be classified as a disorder, uh, it, you can't just have symptoms of something. You, it must, those symptoms must take away from your day-to-day -day life. And there's a whole section in the beginning of this book that talks about what is classified as a disorder. I mean, I'll give you an example. The example I always use is, you know, someone who goes home and drinks every single day and drinks two bottles of scotch, it doesn't matter, um, as long as they're going to work, having a productive work life, uh, their, their, you know, husband or wife and children are 
feeling uh, good and uh, everything at home is fine and they have a adaptive uh, home and social life and all of that, that cannot be called alcoholism or alcohol dependence or alcohol addiction. It just cannot. It's not considered a disorder unless it is specifically taking away from the quality of life. And that's a really important thing to start with when we talk about autism, because, you know, there are individuals, and I see there are questions coming up also about adults who are now diagnosed with autism. There yeah. are individuals who are diagnosed with autism who actually are, um, I guess, how do I want to word this, who, who have this the they benefit from some of those strengths that come with a diagnosis of autism for example they have an incredible memory um, or they have an unbelievable ability with numbers or they have like you know an incredible ability with visual features of things in their environment and, and those are wonderful. And the things that, you know, the downsides of autism, let's say not being able to socialize or communicate properly, all that sort of stuff is not as severe in those individuals and they thrive um, and they have the diagnosis, but they're thriving and they're like really enjoying life and benefiting from all of it and just having a great time, even though they're quite different, right? Yeah. On the other hand, there's individuals who are, it's the other way around the symptoms of autism that they have prevent them from having an adaptive, happy, fulfilling life. Uh, they're not thriving. They have, you know, on the higher level, I'll say they have social anxiety, which prevents them from interacting. On the more severe level, they can't communicate their needs. They can't socialize. They can't go out in public. They have so many skills they're lacking, right? So it really has to do with the experience of the individual. An individual might say, I have autism, but I'm perfectly fine. I'm thriving. I'm enjoying life. All is good. And that individual does not need to change. As long as you're doing great and you're enjoying your life and everybody around you is happy and all that sort of stuff, wonderful. But there are individuals who are struggling with their diagnosis of whatever it might be, autism, alcoholism, anxiety, you name it, whatever their diagnosis might be. And if you're struggling, then obviously you want change. Then obviously you're seeking out help in order to strengthen yourself, overcome those weaknesses and be able to thrive, right? It's all about enjoying life and thriving in life. So now in society, just to go back to this question, when we have individuals who are whose issues, whose symptoms and issues infringe upon others in society and make life harder for others in society, then it isn't just an issue of neurodiversity. There's a level of acceptance, right? But it, it, there's a limit as well. For example, uh, you know, I do occasionally I do training, Shannon, for organizations, large organizations that like Oracle, you know, these companies where they want to make some change in their environment so that those with autism can work there and feel fulfilled. And, you know, they want to make some modifications. Great. So they will make modifications. There are things like the individual with autism will have 
a mentor that they can check in with every day. The individual will, you know, their seat will be in an area where it's not too noisy or too disturbing. So, and certain modifications are perfectly fine. But if the individual with autism walks over to their neighboring employee and hits them every single day, then that's not okay. Then that's not something that can just be excused by saying autism is an issue of neurodiversity, right? So certain, there are limits to what society and other people are willing to accept. And that's when it goes from being just an issue of neurodiversity to an issue of behavior, right? And that's when we need to really look at the issue and say, okay, I'm going to help you overcome or modify or uh, replace this particular behavior because it is now infringing on the rights of someone else whether that be your next door neighbor, your employer, your employee, another employee, a parent, a, a sibling, you name, or another child in school, it's always about sort of like, you know, as you say, Shannon, I love saying, we gotta make it fair for our kids. We also have to make it fair for other kids and other people around our kids. Absolutely. So that's kind of where it's at. Absolutely. Um, I love that way of looking at it. Uh, I'm saying hello to Huma. Uh, who is writing to us from uh, Pakistan. Uh, I want to address where I'm all out of order here, but I love this question and it's, it, it goes right to what we're having this, this time of year. Renee and Elvira say, I have a very specific question. Every allergy season, my son gets super sick and he doesn't know how to blow his nose. Any oh, tips? She great. does say, I've tried to teach him with a tissue in front of him and have him blow it with his mouth. And then with his nose, he has no clue what I'm asking. Jogging yeah. you. This is hard. So here, I think you might have been the one that I answered on my TikTok, actually. I'm just, I think yesterday or today, going to post that response. But it is a, it is that three-step thing where the way that, and you can model it. If he has no idea what you're trying to tell him, model it. And essentially, what you're doing is you will hold a tissue in front of him, right? And you will just play a game that's like blow and you'll show him. And if he doesn't know how to blow, so blow like that, right? And if he doesn't know that step, then you're gonna go back to another thing, which is those like party favors, for example, mm -hmm. or a candle or things that visually will actually go out or change when he blows, right? Because you really wanna get him to understand the the instruction blow. And when he does like that, that's wonderful. Now the next step, so that's your first step. Your next step is trying to get him to blow with his nose, which is like that, right? And if you if he's having a hard time understanding that, then just hold your hand in front of his mouth when you tell him to blow. And again, model it, maybe hold his hand on in, in front of your nose so he sees that you can still produce that kind of air out of your nose. And that is step two, which is getting um, just to blow out of your nose. And that's when you then will hold the tissue closer and now he's blowing out of his nose and then you can actually wipe his nose. Now, I know I made it sound really easy and sometimes it just doesn't work for our kids out for whatever reason. And I hate to say it, but the only other alternative is uh, they do sell, uh, they're like little suction bulbs that we use when they're babies, right? And what you would do is you would put saline in his nose first 
and then you would suction it out so that that is helping with the with the allergies but a lot of times when you actually go and see an allergist about allergies seasonal allergies They'll tell you that um, then your child needs to get on an uh, antihistamine or some sort of medication that's going to help them not have a runny nose the whole time. It's funny that you this is the season. My husband is one of those people, and I every too. morning he wakes up with sneezing, sneezing, and it's a very tough period of time for our kids. So um, take your time with this. It is you know kind of one step at a time. Lots of reinforcers in between. Uh, each stage and just focus on each stage. You're not going to do all three stages in one sitting. You're just going to focus on stage one for like a, a few days until he's really good at it. Then you're going to go to stage two and then stage three like that. Amazing. Sarah wants to know, hi, Dr. Doreen, what is the correlation between hyperlexia and autism? Is it a predictor of functioning level? So I, I'll give you an anecdotal answer to that. So yeah, I do have a lot of kids who have, or some kids who have hyperlexia and that for our viewers, hyperlexia is when children, uh, they have a, a amazing ability to, with, uh, with letters and they can read earlier than other children. I mean, I have children who have taught themselves at the age of two how to read. And I'm like, oh my God, you know? So they are very advanced in the ability to read words. That doesn't mean to understand words, but to read words, right? So um, I, I don't. I, I want to say that anecdotally, and I don't think there's any published literature on this, but from my personal experience, a child who has hyperlexia usually gets me pretty excited because they have a certain organization in their brain that makes it easier to teach them a lot of things. So in that sense, they tend to go faster through their lessons and programming. And, you know, like, I don't want to confuse people. I want to talk for a minute, Shannon, about like the way that I do ABA, which is a little bit different than typical ABA, I think. So, you know, the way that I look at it, ABA is not just a series of, it's two different things. One is like a series of techniques that we use to help manage behavior. So challenging behavior is kind of like a, a series of techniques where we communicate to the child what behaviors are accepted and others are, that are not acceptable and how they should modify their behaviors and make them more adaptive. So that's one section of it. The other section of it is a whole different series of uh, protocols and, and methods that we use just for teaching, teaching new skills. And so that's, to me, the bigger portion of ABA, which is because there's hundreds of skills where our kids fall behind, right? So it's like whether they're three years old when they're diagnosed or four or whatever it is, there's a few years of early development that they were not paying attention, were not able to learn the way other children learn. So now they've fallen behind. And Shannon, I'm just going to answer because there was an earlier question I saw that came in that said something about, you know, my child being diagnosed and they're, uh, I think they're like functioning at an 18 months old when the child is actually two and a half years old, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm going to throw that in here as well. So, you know, our, there's two ages, chronological age, which is our own age, like the age that you have, and mental age, which is the age of your, your brain. 
functioning. So usually your chronological age and your mental age are the same. So uh, you are, let's say, five years old and your mental age is that of a five-year-old. And that's how you calculate IQ, intelligence quotient, IQ is the the um is mental age divided by chronological age times 100 and that's how it's one over one right times 100 so it's 100 normal iq is 100. so basically um with our kids because they are aging their chron chronological age is getting more higher but their mental age is slower because it's so distracted and it's not learning it's almost like you know, they're in a foreign world. They don't understand things fast enough. So they're not, they're, they're losing time. So what happens is obviously their mental age falls behind. So as their mental age falls behind, this is often a very shocking thing for parents to be told, oh, you're, he's functioning like a two-year-old. But that doesn't mean that he will always be functioning as a two-year-old. That's the whole purpose of intensive therapies like ABA is that as time is going on, as chronological age is moving forward, now we're going to use these incredibly intensive therapies to double up and teach the child what they didn't catch up with, what they fell behind on. So now in a span, as he goes from age four to five, I'm actually going to teach him two years worth of stuff so that, you know, he's catching up. So his mental age will now go faster than time, which is chronological age, and then he will catch up. So those things all happen with therapy. And um, I totally forgot how, where I started, Shannon. We started with the hyperlexia. Right. Um, yes. And the kids who have hyperlexia, it ends up going a little faster just because we can use the written word as a prompt in teaching. So a lot of times kids with hyperlexia will just master all the things they have to learn a little bit faster, which obviously helps them catch up. So I want to ask a question and tie it in with Gareth wrote in and said a lot about how um, his brain works and how it's constantly running and, 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 and how it, it's like a computer. I'm paraphrasing and forgive me, Gareth, but you wrote this beautiful, beautiful section about sometimes people don't understand the strength of the brain with autism, um, that he doesn't want to go into it too much, but um, that they don't understand how my brain is running at a thousand miles an hour from waking to sleep and sometimes in sleep uh, because of the day. I can watch one thing and never forget it. And, um, and I think this, for me, this kind of goes along with the, cause Sarah has written back and said, so do I need to take advantage of the hyperlexia? I know you said anecdotally that you get excited because individuals who have hyperlexia, the brain's going to move faster and you're going to be able to teach so many more things. But I have also seen anecdotally from my 16 years talking to parents that if you don't accommodate and, and, and give that brain that's hyperlexic, things to focus on that it will, that what I have heard from parents is that then it turns into um, perseveration and anxiety because they don't have enough to do. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that not only is it imperative that for those kiddos that we get them the right therapies, but that we give them enough to focus on. Am I at all in the ballpark, Dr. Grampuchet? Oh, totally, Shannon. There's no question that, and I hadn't thought about it in terms of just hyperlexia, but I agree with you that there's, you know, any child, and if you just stop, kind of look at it from a different perspective, any child, I think that 
has a propensity or a strength or a desire or a wish or whatever, a need. It doesn't matter. Like to do a specific type of behavior or their brain is kind of craving something. And if you just let them be, they're going to try and find ways that will accommodate that need. And sometimes the ways that they find are not necessarily the most adaptive. So it is quite possible that they might find other things to do, like carrying a letter around and looking at it like this the whole time. Other things rather than using that particular skill to move forward. I mean, and and by the way, I want to say hyperlexia is just kind of one of the, this is what I love about autism is that each of our kids have a different, you know, um, sensory ability. I can, I want to, I don't want to compare it, but you know how, um, sometimes when you lose one of your senses and we talk about this with like people like Stevie wonder, for instance, who have lost a specific sense, other senses become accentuated and you develop in ways that neurotypical people do not. Right. So like you look at musicians who are, who have lost their sight and their musical ability, their auditory ability is is tremendous, like Ray Charles or Stevie Wonder or so on as examples, right? And there are many others. And with our kids, I find the same thing. Like there are certain areas where their senses are dulled and then there are other areas where their senses are unbelievably advanced. So many of our kids have uh, artistic abilities. So many of my kids are able to, and just reading what Gareth wrote here, or Garth, I'm sorry if I mispronounced your, your name. Um, there are so many of our kids who will, for instance, see one thing one time and they have a 100% visual recall of it, or they have they will listen to a song and be able to immediately play it on a keyboard. I mean, these are not neurotypical things, right? These are incredible advanced abilities. And so you see that within our field as well, which is, yes, there might be an area where the child is behind, but there are significant other areas where often they're, they're advanced. But I think we've all arrived at the, and I love Amanda wrote in and said that she experienced this with her, her um, son, um, that the hyperlexia can be both uh, a curse and a gift and that you have to be careful um, and that she wished she'd handled it differently. And maybe, uh, Amanda, if you want to share with Sarah some of the ways that you wish that you'd handled it, handled it differently. But I love what you said about all kids across the board. If we don't feed them that, and, and, and I'm talking about feed their brains, not just, and it's both the food and the things for them to do. We don't want to leave people to be bored. Yeah, uh, we want to we want to engage the brains and excite them um, in a positive way. So uh, maybe write in and say that. Now, Shade has written in and said, any advice on how to stop licking? My child started this behavior, licking their hand and wiping the saliva all over their face. The behavior started with a series of colds and now continues, although they are well. Uh, they also like to use a wet washcloth uh, as well, if not licking. Yeah. I love that, you know, behavior, human behavior is so incredibly complicated. And, and initially we're like, okay, well, we just have to, you know, prevent the child from licking and all that. 
But before I give you an intervention, I guess I'd like to learn more about uh, this wet washcloth thing as well, because to me it is it appears and like this is where you this is where if I knew your child I'd be doing what's called a functional behavior assessment so I could identify exactly what is the function of the behavior. Uh, our kids will develop these little behaviors and we're always like, well, that's an odd behavior. I should get rid of it. But before you get rid of it, you kind of should find out what is the function of it? What is he trying to do with it? What it, What is he replacing or, or you know, what other need is being met by this behavior? And so we, we always say here, what's the paycheck? He's getting a paycheck for it. What's his paycheck? Let's not take away his paycheck. Uh, exactly. There's some reason that this started and it could have been something like he had a cold. Um, may, I mean, it could be so many different things. I'll give you a couple of ideas. So, you know, he had a cold from the cold. His nose became very dry or his lips. And then he figured out that uh, something like a wet washcloth or a saliva in that area will now remove the dryness feeling and it feels better because it's not dry. That's one option. Another option is he had a cold and his nose was running and you'd come up and wipe his nose a lot. So he got a lot of attention from you. And now he's thinking, maybe what I have to do is make my whole face wet so that I can get mom to come over again. So we kind of have to figure out exactly sort of what led to the behavior. Uh, so maybe you can help me with that. How did it develop? What were the things that you saw coming up as he was when he had the cold? And um, what in your behavior, what changed? So like when he had the cold, what started happening? Was he getting a lot more of your time? Is he getting a lot more of your time right now? Uh, by doing this behavior. So what we're trying to figure out is, was it a was it an, a, an avoidance type of behavior, a tangible, is it access to something uh, like the wet washcloth? Is it access to attention from you? Uh, maybe you can give us a little bit more information. Yeah, because ultimately, when we figure out what what it, what the paycheck is, then you can figure out what to put the replacement with. Exactly. I think that's the part that as parents, we don't always go, oh, that's why I need to know that. Because if it if it had a paycheck and I give it a replacement, we're not going to have some big push me, pull you trauma over it. We've, we've met the child's needs. It's what's fair. It's what we started yes. with, what's fair. But if yes. we try to say, oh, you're doing that and you're doing it for a reason. Now I want you to stop. Good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> you're not going to have a good time with that. Well, and and you stop in different ways, right? It's like if it's and I see that Chad is writing in again and saying yes. that it, he was having mucus from his nose, I think is what she's saying, and that she was cleaning it with a washcloth. But she has a feeling that it has it was a sensory seeking behavior, and there you go. And that in itself is very important. And if you feel that he has a sensory uh, need. Mm, now she wrote back in, which is a whole different thing. <laughs> she wrote back in and said the paycheck I thought was me telling him to stop. So let's try to correct this and keep both of those things in mind. Because so what you're saying is maybe part of it was that he was getting a kick from it because he was getting your attention. Negative attention is attention. It doesn't matter. So part of it is that. 
But then the other side you're saying is that he also has enjoys the sensory aspect of it. So let's let's provide him the ability to have some sort of sensory thing going on and let's remove you from the equation. Let's do both of those things. So, um, yeah, I'm just looking at, exactly. So he has dry skin, so that's actually wonderful. And so one of the things that you can do is just stop telling him to do it or not do it. Let's just stop intervention, any kind of uh, consequence from you when he does this. But let's put him on a schedule where he, I don't know, maybe depends on whether he's home or not, but at certain intervals, like every two hours, can you you just out of out of the blue go over to him and take him to a mirror and put some lotion, show him, show him how to put lotion, rub his hands and rub it on his face. So let's teach him to start putting a, an appropriate lotion, especially since he's also prone to eczema, uh, to on his face and then to walk away from it. And then you go about doing just moving on. And the frequency at which you want to do that is basically, hopefully, uh, something that's manageable throughout his day. Like a lot of people, my husband being one of them also because he has these allergies, will uh, you know, have like a small lotion with him. He also used to have a ton of eczema from allergies. So he has a, uh, he, it's just a, a habit now where he will put lotion and put it all over his dry spots. Let's start by doing that and please track it and let us know if the other behavior, which was spit and running starts to go down try not to get too involved with him when he is putting spit what i would do instead of saying don't do that or something like that is i would just move his hand away and interact with him with some other type of activity so basically distract him to something else but don't verbally uh respond to him or consecrate it and let's see if actually having moisture and having this sensory need met uh, will now eliminate the other way that he was meeting his sensory need. Okay, we have so many questions, but I really want to get right now to Jill wrote in and said, my son refuses to go in the bathtub. He is not afraid of water. Um, ABA is doing a water protocol. He's afraid of the tub. Where do I start? He is so traumatized. My thing is jumping around here. Um, and I I can't see it now. I don't know why it's not moving. Okay. He's so traumatized from the last bath, which we had to wash hair. Um, and I really appreciate this, Jill, because um, this is one of the things that came up a lot when I was at um, the Calaba the other day is about trauma and trauma-informed care and how careful we need to be because when kids are traumatized um, and, and then we get in there and we aren't thinking about the trauma and try to do something, sometimes we can gum it up and make it worse, which was not our intention. But then where do you go from here? He's yeah. traumatized by the tub. Yep. So trauma is really interesting. I, it's funny, I had this experience um, with my son when he was very little. And this is the kind of thing that happens when kids, you know, trauma and how it, how it generalizes. He was probably about, I want to say two, two and a half or something. And we were in Europe 
And, you know, at, until that point of his life, he, he was living in California where it doesn't rain. <laughs> Just that simple. So he's not had the experience of rain. So we go to Germany and uh, he was out playing with someone and uh, it started to rain and thunder, which is a very typical thing in Europe, in Germany. And he, my son was not a, a familiar with that. And this person who was with him, an adult, was just trying to make it playful and said, oh, thunder, we better run and like picked him up and started running home and brought him inside. And unfortunately, that experience became traumatic for him. He became terrified of thunder initially, which of course a lot of kids are afraid of as well. But then that became turned into water because it was rain. And then that water uh, that generalized to oceans or all bodies of water, he wouldn't go out. He, and then um, he started to be terrified of even the bathtub, exactly the same situation here. Whereas before he used to love taking a bath and that even became worse because then he started to kind of become agoraphobic in some ways that he didn't want to go outside, even back in California, because he was afraid of the rain, right? And it was like, what will I do? So this reversing trauma is a thing that takes a long time. And so one of the things I had to do was literally, I had to take, I mean, the big one, the, when I realized that it has generalized a lot was when we then sometime later were in Hawaii and he just absolutely refused to go down to the, to the ocean, right? Would just not go. And he had massive tantrums around it. And so for an entire week, I would, um, you, I would step, I would stand where he was comfortable a certain distance from the ocean and I would do all kinds of activities. And the goal for that day was that we would go one step further closer and that was it. And that, and then we would do a throw a party there and spend the rest of the day there. And the next day we'd go two steps closer and so on. And by the end of the week, I was able to get him to, um, put his feet in the water, which was a big accomplishment. I had to do that. When we got back home, I had to do the exact same thing with bathtub, which was, a, it's a shaping procedure. So it will take a while. It'll take a month. And initially the bathtub is no longer going to be a place to wash him. Like, let's just be very clear about that. If you have another bathtub in the house, great. If you don't, you're going to have to, uh, you know, um, wash him with a wet washcloth until this procedure works. But what you're going to have to do is like, I would make the bathtub a fun place. You can throw toys into it. You can just turn it into, you know, like get those, um, kids have those uh, sprays that are color and you can draw with it inside the bathtub, whatever. It's a fun place. It has nothing to do with water initially. If you start to do a few things there, perhaps he can wash his hands there. Okay. That might be one way to start. And you will now gradually increase it over the course of the next couple of weeks, which is He's still playing, but he can sit on the edge of the bathtub and maybe stick his feet in the water, wash his feet. And then gradually the water can come up to his shins. And then now he's still playing. And then three days later, the water can come a little bit further up. And now you can fill the bathtub but it's uh, and put bubbles and everything in it, but he's not actually, he's just going to sit on the edge and he's going to play with a sailboat. It's a, trauma takes a long time. And you will need to go at his pace and you'll need to bring in a lot of rewards and a lot of distraction 
to be able to reverse that and to make him be okay with every phase of it. Now, I, some of it will be just he'll start getting scared. Don't necessarily back off, just give more support, give more distraction, give more reward for being able to stay there. But don't, I'm not a big believer in flooding, which is kind of like forcing the child to go back to that traumatic event and just deal with it. So I, just, I like to recommend that you do these things very slowly and just kind of reverse and try to give the child a positive stimulus to associate it with. Wonderful. And uh, Jill wrote in and said, I'm glad I'm sort of on the right track using a baby pool for now. And Amanda wrote in and reminded me about Glow Pals. Glow Pals are these amazing things that were invented by a mom whose uh, son uh, was having issues with the bath. They look like ice cubes, but they're different colors and they only light up in water. Yeah. And you start with them in a glass of water that they can stick the glow pal in the glass of water and they see that it lights up and then you put it in a bowl and then eventually you put it someplace else. And so that they want to use it in the bathtub. Loves, love us some glow pals. They were in our toy guide a couple of They're years so ago. They're so good. Yeah. Thank you. And, and I do want to say that for Amanda and Sarah, um, Sarah was asking the question about, um, the hyperlexias, uh, Sarah is watching on YouTube and Amanda was answering with suggestions of what she would do on Facebook. Um, uh, Amanda, Sarah is asking to be connected to you. I don't know which one of you can go to which place if Sarah, if you can get to Facebook and find Amanda or Amanda, if you can get to YouTube and find Sarah, um, that way maybe you guys, cause you're talking on two different platforms and I didn't realize that until just a couple of minutes ago. So, uh, but I think probably you guys would be lifelong friends. I'm guessing, uh, we're out of time and I don't want to be out of time. We have a million more questions. Uh, in particular, there was a question from the mom who wrote it and said, my, my daughter was diagnosed with mild autism. The therapist said her language delay was due to autism and had nothing to do with cognitive impairment. He also said that she would catch up to her peers and I shouldn't worry about it too much since her case is pretty mild. He did, however, recommend ABA therapy. And then when she went for the assessment, they told her that they were recommending 40 hours a week. She says, that's way higher than I assume my daughter would need since she has such a mild case. And they also told her that her daughter was at a level of 18 months. You answered that already. Uh, My daughter is two and a half. I really wasn't expecting this. And basically mom says, I don't know how these two things mesh together. We're going to ask Dr. Grampichet in the next couple of days to answer that on TikTok as well. Some, yes, other questions, some other questions that you guys have written in. There's some pretty weighty ones, but so um, in, oh, there you go. Amanda found her on, um, on YouTube. Amanda, you're amazing. Um, so, um, so thrilled. And, and Gareth, thank you for being here. Um, we, we loved all of your input. Thank you all of you for being here. We loved all of your input. Um, and check out Ask Dr. Doreen on TikTok. And you can also be answering your asking your questions there and seeing them answered there. But thank you so much for being here tomorrow. On tomorrow's show, we have Christian... Kristen Jacobson is going to be with us and she might be bringing some friends with her. They are part of the September 24th project, Dr. Grampichet. As you know, our beloved Veda Almalidi and her son, uh, Moo, died tragically in a house fire. Um, This, and, and if you at all knew of any of Veda's work that she was doing, you would know that she, she would not be okay 
uh, if her death didn't lead to more people being more safe with their children. So there's an amazing group of moms and therapists that have gotten together and created this project in her, in honor of her and her work. And she, uh, Kristen is going to be talking with us tomorrow about things that we can all do to help ourselves be safe in our home with our kids of all abilities. Um, no matter how big the challenge, making sure that we can get them and ourselves to safety if there is a fire. It's a really important conversation. I hope you guys will join us here for that conversation. And then on Thursday, Nancy Allspot Jackson will join me. We're going to cover some amazing news this week. So we're revving up for April. But Dr. Grampy Shea, oh, the love, the love, the love that we all have for you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Shannon. We'll be back next week. Until then, everybody, give your kiddos a hug from me and one for you too. Bye-bye for now. Bye, everyone.